Hey there. I'm so glad you're back again for part two of the talk here on Uncensored Wizard. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask you to do a favor for me if you are enjoying this content and if you think it might be helpful to others. If you will, just real quick before we jump into the podcast, hit the pause button and go to your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple or uh, Google. Go there and like or follow the podcast and give us a, hopefully, a five-star rating. Um, Go do that real quick. Come back and enjoy part two of the talk. Religiously fueled abandonment fears um, are pretty unique in that the reason for any feeling of abandonment is always laid at the feet of the abandoned. And it's even viewed as punishment. And if you're raised in a church like mine, this starts happening at a, at a pretty young age. And basically, as a child, I received that as if God or the church abandons you, It is because you deserve it. Also, people who abandoned the church, it was often brought up after the fact, if things went bad in their life, why that might have happened. For instance, I knew this one couple who had been coming to church and then they left the church. I'm not sure why, but they left church in general. And a few months down the road, they ended up getting a divorce. And then one of them, their house burned down. And I remember being told that that probably happened because they had they had left the church. So these religiously fueled abandonment fears, and, and everyone has fears of abandonment. It's a very human sort of fear. But the kind of abandonment fears that uh, were programmed into my psyche at a young age, these religiously founded um, sort of uh, abandonment fears, are there because of a message that being abandoned is wrong, being abandoned is bad, and being abandoned means that you've done something wrong and and you deserve it. Um, of course, even the belief that God could abandon you, it was in our theology, you know, it was kind of preached literally that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? that God actually did forsake Christ, that that is something I, I no longer believe. I, I don't interpret that text in that way. But this was something that was taught in church, that God could completely abandon you, which is a odd thing because there's other evidence in Scripture that God does not abandon us, um, that God doesn't abandon his children which denies biblical accounts like in Psalm 139 where the psalmist said even if he were to make his bed in hell, that God would be there. Also, the words of Jesus himself, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, you know, definitely some contradiction going on there. But, but in church, in, in the church I was raised in, it was, it was taught that God could abandon you. In fact, I remember in sermons about hell, uh, not only would they talk about the hellfire and the brimstone and the worms. Oh, God, I used to hate that part. Some preachers would talk about the worms eating you all day long while you're in hell. Um, 
But that wasn't the worst part, the preachers would say. The worst part about hell is that you would be completely separated from God and completely separated from everyone you love. And so as a child, it's super, super scary. You, you want to get this right. Because if you don't, not only will you be burning forever and ever, uh, or if you're left in the rapture, you're, you'll be basically um, in the tribulation and might have your head cut off or something like that. So not only do you have to deal with that, but everyone you love, at least in my family, because my mom and dad were Christians, my grandmother was a Christian, my grandfather had already died and uh, went to heaven, my grandmother had died and went to heaven. And so it's super scary because you could be separated from God and from everyone. Um, this week, actually, I was driving down the road and a, a version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken came on by the Amon Brothers. And I, I listened to the Amon Brothers band a lot. And every time my radio brings up that one, I just I skip it because uh, I hate that song. It's triggering. And it's just a terrible philosophy to embrace. So in the church's version of being left behind, which as a kid also felt like being left out, hell and tribulation await you. And, and in this worldview, any separation from the tribe, the church, or God was seen as the worst thing possible the worst part of hell, a kind of torment that even death would not be able to cure. And so in that way, separation or abandonment or not being part of a tribe always felt bad. It always felt wrong, not just scary, but shameful because for that to happen to you, you know, if you weren't scared enough from doing it, um, then you deserved everything that you had coming. And so if it happened to you, you deserved it. There was no room in this worldview for separations that may be natural or normal as part of the human experience, which we know in reality happens all the time. Uh, death is probably the greatest example of the inevitable separation that we have with those that we love. But just in day-to-day -day living, people deal with divorce. They deal with relationships ending. They move. They change neighborhoods. They change social locations. They change careers. And for someone like me, those things just felt so, so heavy. Um, anytime I was facing or am facing any type of separation or any type of situation where I feel left out or abandoned, it triggers within me sort of these feelings of guilt and shame and fear. And so that, that is why when you walk away from church, even when it's in your best interest to do so at the time or maybe forever, when you were raised like that, it feels like you've done something so wrong when you leave church. You know, it feels like it's just too late to fix. You're out. You're out of the circle. The circle has been broken you know, it feels unpardonable. Now, they'll say it isn't, um, and they want you to come back. But while you're out, even if you need to be out, even if it's important for your own mental health, it's tough. It feels wrong. It feels unpardonable. You know, it's, uh, 
It's like the end of the road. I mean, if you've been abandoned, it's like, it's like the song. This is going to trigger some people, but it's like the song. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been fill in the blank, right? Left behind. And pardon my singing. Um, so, you know, when you are told as a child that this is the way the world works, that worldview programming is it's native software on your operating system. Uh, it's, a, it's a fear program. If it has an extension, it's .f-e-a-r. Uh, and, and the program as a fear extension. It just runs in the background on your operating system at all times. It's always under the surface, making you question every move you make, making you question how you might be perceived by others. Um, it, it makes you question uh, how, how every little decision might make you look how it might make others think about think of you. It makes you constantly um, sort of in the mindset of thinking about what other people are thinking about you or what God, a holy God who is perfect and right, is thinking about you because you're supposed to be measuring up to God's perfect standards. If God is holy, be holy. Uh, and so that that operating, or excuse me, that that programming is is always running in the background of my of my psyche. It's, it's, it's built into my operating system. And what that does um, is that in the end, constantly dealing with that running under the surface of your life, it actually inflates your ego and, and it silences your still small voice because you have to think about how to stay included, how to be viewed correctly, uh, and, and anything that's, that's deeper than that, anything like if your heart starts genuinely questioning something or if your heart genuinely feels like that's just not right, um, you can't do that. You have to shut your heart down <laughs> and go with what matters, and that is how you are perceived by God and by others. And folks, that is Ego 101. The ego exists to help us relate our inner world to the outer world. And it is the way that we are understood by others and is the way we seek to be understood by others. And it plays a role. It just has to be in balance. But when that is the thing that matters the most, the ego gets really, really big. And, and for someone like me, I have a hard time sometimes getting balance between my head and my heart. I often err on one side or the other, my head or, or my heart. And that's just the nature of my personality. And so for me, um, this teaching just caused all kinds of conflict between my head and my heart as, as I grew up because my heart and my intuition begin to say something very different than what my ego was, was ready to, to act on because the cost just seemed too great. So, and, and so there's nothing scarier in this worldview, nothing scarier than dying that death of not being what other people expect you to be, okay? And again, this is how I received it. There was nothing scarier than dying the death of not being, a, of not being what other people expected you to be or what other people thought of you. And it's even scarier... <laughs> when you have played along for so many years 
which I did. So the problem, though, arose when cognitive dissonance got too great for me. Uh, As I grew up and became an adult and began to process the world on my own terms and understand the world on my own, I did not share the same beliefs that I was raised with, nor did I have, in effect, the same behaviors that were expected of me in the church of my youth. The challenge for me is, is that I have a personality that deeply needs to be um, real, that, that deeply needs to be myself and needs to be um, not fake. Being fake actually exhausts me. I hate it. If anything, I err on being too real. I am too real sometimes, I think. But that's just my personality. You know, I I want to be the type of person that you get what you see. Um, And at this stage in my life, that's super important to me. I'm really striving for that. I'm really striving to, to seek out true integrity, not the kind of integrity that felt like a burden in church that was kind of under the shadow of a lot of my religious trauma, but true integrity. And I've always been wired that way. I've always wanted that. My personality wants to be real, wants to be myself, to take in life fully and to bring to the world myself fully. But what do you do when your true self is growing into someone different than the role that you had assumed and played so well? You do what I did. You compartmentalize. That's right. That's the magic word. You compartmentalize. The truth is, I haven't been what I said I was for years. I am so sorry to everyone that I'm letting down right now. I'm coming clean. I haven't always been what I said I was. Not in every setting, at least. Now, people who were close to me knew this. My friends and my family, well, not all my family, but, but some of them and my close friends, they knew that when they were around me, I was going to be myself full stop, okay? So the way this looked like for me, or some important ways, and it just seems so juvenile now, but, if, but, but in this process of, um, of unraveling or deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> These were some of the things that I was, uh, some of the behaviors and thoughts that I was played with the most. So I was ordained and preached in a denomination that forbade the use of alcohol and forbade the use of tobacco. Y'all, I've been drinking for at least 15 years and I don't drink regularly. I don't, I don't even keep it in the house all the time. Um, I typically drink socially, but I do drink every once in a while. I use tobacco every once in a while. I love some good cigars. On a side note, it will blow your mind some of the denominational people and leaders that I have drank with and smoked some cigars with. But maybe I'll share that in another podcast at, a, at another time. But, you know, I was an ordained minister <clears throat> and I agreed to proclaim and defend these beliefs but I believed and behaved differently. 
based on my own study, my own experiences, my own intuition, I was different. I drank, I smoked, (laughs) and my filthy mouth, and I almost cussed right then and decided to leave this a little clean, this, this episode. But my, my mouth, is, it's never changed. And those who, lo- who, who were closest to me and who loved me and who I really loved and was close to, I was always myself. But deep down, there was this, this um, uh, worldview running on the operating system, and I was doing things that were all supposedly damning my soul to hell, according to my upbringing. And so the more that I was myself in certain compartments of my life and was not myself in other compartments of my life, the compartmentalization caused a cognitive dissonance within me because I was doing things that weren't sanctified and thus I was doing things that stood as barriers between me and a holy God, which is ironic because I never felt like my relationship with God, not until the last few years when I finally decided to step away from church and that caused lots of complications between me and God and what I thought about God. But for many years in the church, I was me and I still felt close to God. Um, God still showed up, if you will, in my life. And I still had God moments, which is part of the unraveling because none of that added up. So... This fear-based program was running on the operating system, and it, it just kept checking my behaviors against the inevitable outcome. So here I am compartmentalizing. Meanwhile, warning screens are popping up all over the screen of my conscious saying over and over again, warning, warning, if they find out who you are, if they see who you are, they will not love you, you will be a failure, you will be an imposter, You will be found out and ultimately God will hate you. God will burn you. God will punish you. And so so this created a cycle in my life, right? This created a cycle in my life, almost like a positive reinforcement cycle in psychology. And here's the way the cycle worked for me. For those of you who don't know what a positive reinforcement cycle is in psychology, it's where it's where something happens, uh, maybe completely coincidental, um, but it happens enough times to where you believe that the thing is causing something, and then that something is not desirable, and so you, you get scared of it, you, get a, you are afraid of it, and so then you want to avoid it. And to avoid it, you, you avoid everything you think is associated um, with the cause of, of that feeling. This is what causes agoraphobia, for instance. You know, you you go to the mall or, or to the supermarket, whatever it is, and you're just overcome with this feeling of fear. And then the fear makes your heart race fast and it makes your mind run away and it makes your palms sweat and your body has a visceral, or, or excuse me, very physical response to the feeling. And then the physical response makes you think, oh, well, it must be real. My body's actually feeling it. And so it reinforces the fear and you have a positive reinforcement loop that's happening. So here's the way this loop looked like for me, all right? Compartmentalizing took a hit on my integrity, which took a hit on my self-worth, which triggered feelings of hypocrisy, which led to guilt and shame, 
and ultimately reinforce the belief that I'm not good enough. I cannot trust my own thoughts and my own intuition. I cannot make decisions about my own behaviors because I am not holy. I am not good. I am not sanctified. And here's the kicker, or at least it was for me. This cycle is running over and over and over again. And every Sunday, I have to get up and act like I'm not affected by it. Now, you may be wondering at this point in the episode, when am I actually going to talk about the talk that I had with my family and friends? But my story of having the talk with others is really a story about me having a talk with myself. It's really a story of me discovering how this cycle in my life was present, how it had affected me, how it had affected every relationship and every aspect of my life, and then finally deciding to do something about it. And for me, that that looked like doing psychotherapy um, on an extended basis. That's what it looked like to me. There is no way in hell (laughs) that I would have been ready to face the fear of having that talk with my mom or with my family or with anyone else until I was able to actually see how that cycle was at work in my life and to identify the fear, the core fear of it, which was the fear of abandonment and actually name that fear. Now, this was huge for me because a lot of the um, self-sabotaging behaviors in my life are rooted in this fear of abandonment, this fear of not being good enough this fear of not being um, acceptable, okay? And I had to identify that. And when I did, I saw how that caused my people-pleasing habits, how that caused me to feel like a hypocrite and why I masked, why I wore a mask at church and why I was able to be myself with some church people but not others and to to finally come to terms with, you know, what it was, the hypocrisy and why, why the hypocrisy was present. I don't even know that I would call it hypocrisy now, but definitely uh, there was a, a, a portrayal of something that is different than what I really wanted to be at my core. But I had to really see that for what it is. And instead of, because before I started psychotherapy, I just felt like I was a miserable, lying, hypocrit- hypocritical non-redeemable human being, but now I see uh, what it was and, and what was actually going on under the surface and is still going on. And that didn't happen all at once. Uh, seeing it for what it is is a process, but I will say there were, there have been in, 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 in the past couple of years, uh, two I know of real aha moments that solidified uh, for me what was actually going on uh, in, in my head and in my heart. I see now how religious trauma had affected every area of my life 
and of my relationships. And folks, once I saw that, and once I started to work on that, the talk with people actually came easy and it came organically. I, I really didn't seek any of it out. I, I'm sure there are circumstances where you need to sit down and have a conversation with someone. But for me, it's been more of just organically happening and it's kind of an ongoing talk because I'm still in process. It's, it's all a process. So, um, if there was one conversation that was the hardest that I could talk about, it would be the conversation with, with my mom. Now, my mom wasn't surprised because my mom was on to me. Moms are like that, right? And so for the past couple of years or more, mom knew that my beliefs had changed and she would try to bring it up. She would try to initiate the conversation. Obviously, it was not a conversation I was ready to have. There was too much uh, heaviness to it. Um, Even after I left the church, before I dealt with this cycle and the fears of abandonment, it would have been too heavy. So anytime she would bring it up, I would kind of get defensive, right? Um, I um, I, I would push back. We even had arguments. I mean, overall, it just wasn't good for our relationship for our uh, mother-son relationship. so Because I was always on defen- the defense. And then when I would get defensive, I would feel myself spiraling back into this hypocrisy reinforcement loop. You know, who am I? Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge God and he will direct your paths, right? It's like, you can't trust yourself, man. Um, and so I would start to spiral. But once I identified what was going on and I began to work myself free from the tentacles of that fear and of that cycle, and I'm still working on it, it's a daily battle, um, I I came clean with my mom about a lot of my beliefs on a phone call uh, in which she had called me to ask me a Bible question, which she does from time to time. And this particular Bible question was about sanctification and I don't know. I just, I, the filter was gone I, I, because the fear was not um, real. I mean, it was st- the fear is still there, but I see it for what it is now. You know, I faced the fear to some degree. And so, uh, you know, during this phone call, it, it just fell out of my mouth. I mean, I just came clean, not about everything, but in response to her questions about hell and about backsliding and about sanctification you know, I just I just laid it all on the table, and she did not take it well at first. Okay, she um, she started to argue and kind of push back, which is completely understandable. I, I get it was heavy for her, you know, and she's still in the church and still holds to those beliefs very much. But um, but what I did do in that conversation is I explained to my mom that I did not want to argue with her, that I wanted to, you know, she's. She, we all have a limited time on earth, and she does, and I don't want to spend the remainder of time I have with her on this earth arguing, uh, nor did I want to spend any time convincing her to change her beliefs, but that, if, but that if she genuinely wanted to talk to me about these kinds of things, and if she genuinely wanted to build a relationship with me, um, despite my beliefs and differences in beliefs, she was going to have to accept the fact that we were not going to agree on some things 
And that if we were going to argue, I love a good argument as long as it's spirited but in love. And I explained to her, listen, if we can argue without being defensive, I'll argue with you all day if that's what you want to do. But let's not try to feel like we need to convince one another. And, you know, that was that. Um, You know, I think mom understood and I understood my mom and I, I try very hard to understand her as much as I can. And that was the end of that conversation. My mom is always going to have my back. (laughs) Uh, She knows about my failures, many of my failures. She knows I don't believe everything I was raised in. Um, But she knows that, uh, that I try really hard to be myself and to be the best version of myself. I know my mom loves me. I know she prays for me. And I know that she will fight somebody if they tried to hurt me. So that's, you know, that's the story. I think everyone has a different journey, or um, but but we're also on very similar paths, and you know I, I I don't know that everyone needs to do psychotherapy, but for me, having a therapist, having someone I could process with that could really help me make some connections that I was missing was imperative, and so I just want to say to my listeners if you're if you need to have this kind of a talk. Don't rush it. And I know there are circumstances where you have to, where you have to have it. Maybe you're still in ministry and it's, it's at its, it's at its you know, um, tipping point. You got to deal with it. But if you don't have to rush the talk, don't rush it. Work on yourself. If you have a lot of anxiety about it, work on yourself. You do not owe most people an explanation for your beliefs. You might owe some people an explanation but you do not owe most people an explanation for your beliefs or your behaviors unless they are your beliefs or behaviors are harming them. You don't need an explanation. So let go of that burden. Work on yourself. Do the work. And there will come a time for you to have the talk. You will know when that time is. And you will have it. Maybe it will be like it was for me. And it will just fall right out of your mouth. Right out of your heart. But... It has to start with you seeing the triggers, being ready to confront your fears, and doing the work. Until next time.